to the first episode of the Weird Wiltshire podcast. I am your host, Will Shire. I am going to be covering all manner of weirdness in Wiltshire on this podcast, from the paranormal and supernatural to cryptids and murderers, and anything else that you might want me to cover. I would also just like to take this opportunity to ask that if you have had any experiences that you would like to share with me, please do. You can send them to me at weirdwilcherpodcast at gmail.com in either written or audio format. Audio format is preferred as I can use the audio in the show and you might not get sick of my voice. But written is just as good. I will aim to read every submission I am sent and if you would like a shout out on the show when I read your story, please do leave your name and location in your submission. Today, I'll be kicking off the podcast with a good old-fashioned UFO tale from the town of Warminster. The Warminster thing was a phenomenon that occurred in Warminster from 1964 to 1965, though reports still happen today, but not as frequently and certainly not as widespread. Warminster has a long history which can be traced as far back as the Saxons. It is a small market town situated 15 miles from Stonehenge and is known as a UFO hotspot. In particular, sightings happen in Clay Hill, which legend has it was built by the devil himself, Cradle Hill and Star Hill, all of which were notorious for their skywatching sessions from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. The phenomena begins in the early hours of Christmas Day 1964. Mrs Mildred Head was asleep at her home. At approximately 1.25am she was awoken by a noise which she described as her ceiling coming alive with strange sounds that lashed at her roof. The noise started as if twigs or leaves were scratching at the ceiling but then they changed to a noise similar to giant hailstones falling outside. At this point she summoned the courage to get out of bed to look out of the window. She noted that the night was dry and clear. It was at this point that Mrs Head also noticed a strange humming sound, which grew louder and then faded away to, as she describes, a faint whisper or low whistling. Mrs Head did not report this incident until May 1965, after she read a similar account published in a local newspaper. Sometime later on the same day, four miles away over 30 soldiers at Nook Camp, which is an army training camp, were awoken by a loud noise. A sergeant reported that the noise was similar to a huge chimney stack being ripped from a roof and being scattered in pieces across the camp. The guard was alerted, but no more activity happened after. At 6.12am on the same morning, Mrs. Bai was walking to a Holy Communion service at Christchurch in Warminster. As she approached the church, she reportedly heard a menacing sound. She reports sudden, intense vibrations which descended on her savagely, and she was grabbed by something and was held in a grip of steel, and a violent force pounded at her head, neck and shoulders, and she felt numbed. She then described how she was pinned down by invisible fingers of sound. The report goes on to say that this shocked her greatly, which made it difficult for her to reach the church. So I am guessing she wasn't physically pinned down, 
but it slowed her considerably and maybe caused great resistance to her movements. Also worth noting is that at 6am in winter it would have been dark, the roads would have been quiet and likely this ordeal very terrifying. These four events are the start of the phenomenon called the Warminster Thing and reports of this strange sound started pouring in throughout the winter but nobody was able to locate the source of the strange sound. In February 1965 Scientist David Holton described hearing a high-pitched droning noise, then witnessed a flock of pigeons killed in flight as they made contact with paralysing sound beams of the droning noise in the woods in Crockerton. Crockerton is a village three miles outside of Warminster. He describes how once the pigeons seemingly flew into the beam, they plummeted to the ground with stiff wings. David Holton later appeared on a local news segment where he declared that the thing came from outer space and it would only be a matter of time before the source of the noise revealed itself. When spring came around, further reports from local residents came in of droning metallic noises, which in some cases were powerful enough to bring them to their knees. People reported their rooftops and windows shaking, as well as pets becoming violently ill. March 28, 1965, at approximately 11pm, Eric Payne was walking down a dark, foggy country road in Bishopstrow, which is near the Boreham housing estate, when he heard what he thought was the wind whistling through telegraph wires. The sound became more and more intense and he was pushed and held down by a tremendous racket, like a gigantic tin can with huge nuts and bolts inside of it, rattling over his head. He also reported hearing a shrill whining and buzzing which nearly drove him mad and that his head was pushed from side to side and he also said, I may as well have left my arms and legs at home for all the use they were. He could not stop the great downward force on him and he crawled around on the road for a small time before stopping on his knees on the grass verge at the side of the road. He also noted that the force appeared to flatten treetops on either side of him. By late spring of 1965, the reports of UFOs over Warminster were coming in thick and fast. May 19, 1965, Hilda Hebdige reported seeing unusual objects in the sky over the course of a week. She described the crafts as being cigar-shaped and covered in winking lights that were gold and yellow. She claimed that although they were very high in the sky, they were stationary. They emitted no beams or rays and seemingly made no noise and they gradually faded away as she watched them. Interestingly, she said that two of the objects appeared to be over Longleat, which is an Elizabethan country house and safari park. The other object appeared to be over Hatesbury. Both are roughly four miles from Warminster, but they are in opposite directions, so it seems that there is activity in Warminster and the surrounding areas. On June 3rd, 1965, the Phillips family reported seeing a cigar-shaped UFO in the sky, which hung a brilliant spectacle in the sky for a good 25 minutes or more. 
The family reported it did not appear to change position at all during this time and that there was a distinct dark circular patch or aperture at the base of the fiery object which gave off a halo of red or orange light. In total, 17 people witnessed this glowing cigar-shaped craft with one witness being so surprised with what he was seeing he fell into the lake. On August 10th, 1965, at 3.45am, Rachel Atwill, the wife of a Royal Air Force pilot, woke suddenly to a terrible droning noise that made her home shake violently. She got out of bed and went to look out of her bedroom window. Between two bungalows opposite her house, she saw what appeared to be a massive bright object like a star. She said, I have never believed in UFOs, but I cannot describe it as anything else. It was domed on top and huge. It hung in the sky and the craft didn't frighten me on its own, but the awful noise it made did. The noise started to quieten down and the star began to flicker as it did so. She also described the feeling of a tight band of steel around her forehead and a pounding in her ears whilst the noise was at its most powerful. She claims the encounter lasted 25 minutes, but she was the only witness, though she did live on a private estate. At 4.36am on the same day, Terry Pell was driving his lorry from Spalding to Warminster. With him were his wife and daughter, but they were sleeping. As he drove by Callaway Clump, a ball of crimson light flew from the hillside and was hovering 50 yards in front of him. As he continued driving, the ball of light then sped towards him, head on at high speed. In a moment of blind panic, Mr. Pell hit his brakes and was doing around 30 miles an hour to avoid a collision. But the ball of light came to a complete stop right in front of his lorry and then moved backwards at the same speed as the lorry. So at this point, the light is leading the lorry down the road. The ball of light then left the road and proceeded back to Callaway Clump, where it hovered for a few seconds before vanishing completely. On August 17th, 1965, an explosion was seen and felt by residents on the Boreham Field housing estate. One resident named Walter Curtis described a huge blast and a series of jolts and explosions being felt underfoot, and that it was the biggest explosion he had ever heard. His wife described it as if it was as though the gas main opposite had blown up. Another resident, David Pinnell, ran outside when he heard the explosion. He's a very brave man. I certainly wouldn't have done that. He claimed to have seen a monstrous orange flame in the sky, shaped like a light bulb, that was so bright it illuminated the nearby hills. And when the light faded, he saw a great ball of smoke with a yellow core float down from the hills which appeared to be crackling and hissing when it touched grass or trees. Yet another resident and his wife described the incident as one hell of a bang, similar to the sound of a building being demolished and also that minor quakes followed the explosion. There were also reports from residents who witnessed a very large illuminated ball of smoke with a shining golden heart settle in the middle of the road and gradually disperse in wisps whilst the golden heart appeared to burn out.
the explosion caused broken windows on two houses on the estate. Situated close to the explosion site was the Battlesbury Barracks and the School of Infantry, along with aerodromes. None of these sites claimed responsibility for the blast, though it is worth mentioning that tangled pieces of a white, light, brittle metal were found at the Battlesbury Barracks site, which was approximately a mile from the blast site. So after these reports came in, a public meeting was set up by Council Chairman Merlin Rees for the people of Warminster at the Town Hall. The purpose of this meeting was to explore all of the evidence and reassure the public, and for some reason they decided it would be broadcast on national television. And rather conveniently, it was arranged for the August bank holiday weekend. It had become somewhat of a sensation locally and UFO hunters and visitors alike flocked to the area in droves, hoping to see or experience something for themselves. It attracted so many people in fact that the local hotels ran out of rooms and some had to take to camping in fields and sleeping in their cars. The town hall was packed full of people and hundreds of people were standing outside during the meeting due to the facility physically running out of space for them. Mr Inge, who manned an observation post some 12 miles away to provide information for government research centres, explained that the majority of sightings were satellites, rockets burning up, celestial events and military operations, but he admitted that 25% of the reports were still unexplained. He believed the strange sounds people kept reporting were nothing more than noise generated by helicopters. Dr John Cleary Baker from the local Bufora, the British UFO Research Association, declared that hallucinations and hoaxes could be ruled out but there was no danger from the thing. Dr E. R. Dole of the Nufoa the National UFO Association, said we are struggling to explain these phenomena. We defy sceptics to find any explanation that will satisfy people that these things are not from outer space. You should not be afraid, you are privileged to investigate them. He also suggested a local listening post be set up by volunteers to study the thing. Now, in the lead up to the public meeting, David Holton, he was the man who witnessed the dead pigeons from earlier, made claims that he had accumulated an abundance of files of UFO sightings in the area. He was then asked to bring the files with him to the meeting. But he didn't show up at the meeting and claimed that it had become a media circus and revealing his evidence would betray the witnesses' confidence in him. On a side note... In 2005, David wrote to the Warminster Journal to confess that the dead pigeon sighting was a hoax, claiming, I just wanted to see the psychological effect of it on the town. So make of that what you will in regards to the rest of his reports. Along with David Holton's absence, senior officers from the military also failed to show up. Given that there are six airfields, Salisbury Plain, which is an army exercise and weapons testing facility, 
and the Army School of Infantry close to Warminster, they could have really helped to try and clear things up. This is where a man called Arthur Shuttlewood fits into things. Arthur was an ex-councillor and the chief reporter of the local newspaper, and without him you could argue that none of these reports would have made it into the national or the international spotlight. Some may also argue that the Warminster thing became his life due to the amount of work he put into investigating and reporting on the thing, and later compiling all of the reports into a book. Arthur went on to write numerous books on UFOs in Warminster, and he died in 1996 after a long illness. On August 29th, 1965, a Warminster resident, Gordon Faulkner, claimed to have snapped the thing, or at least something odd, with his camera. It was a rather pie-shaped looking object. He gave the photo to Arthur Shuttlewood to do whatever he felt necessary with. I've posted this photo in the show notes on my Facebook page. Um, there should be a link in the show description. Um, so if you'd like to follow that and you'll be able to see the photo. This photo was eventually claimed to be a hoax in the early 1990s by a man called Roger Hooten. Hooten claimed he and Faulkner created it using a cotton reel, a button and a milk top badge. Faulkner claims he never knew anyone called Roger Hooten and has never admitted that the photo was a hoax. Despite the hoax claim, this picture is the picture that Arthur Shuttlewood used on the cover of his book about the Warminster thing. On the afternoon of the 26th of September 1965, Arthur Shuttlewood had an experience of his own. He claimed to have received a phone call. On the other end of the phone, a voice claimed to be called Khan from a planet called Einstria. Arthur invited him over so that they could prove that they were indeed an extraterrestrial being. Apparently, seconds later, there was someone at his door who allegedly had no visible pupils in his eyes and had blue blotches on his cheeks and lips. Arthur spent nine minutes with this being and said he felt that if provoked, Khan would kill him. During those nine minutes, Khan apparently told Arthur that a third world war was inevitable at some point in the future. Along with environmental damage, a lack of human morality, war in the Middle East and further UFO experiences. Khan also apparently had difficulty breathing and would regularly look at a gold disc situated on his wrist. When Khan went to leave, Arthur tried to shake his hand and Khan winced in pain. He then walked away slowly. Arthur said he was shocked by this experience, but he suspected it was a hoax. It's also worth noting that apparently the call was traced to a payphone on the Borum Field estate, so I would say this was definitely a hoax. In October and November, there were also sightings of men wearing balaclavas in Warminster and the surrounding villages. In North Bratham, one of the villages, a retired RAF captain and his wife were driving in the area when they reportedly saw a youth who was completely naked, apart from a jacket he was wearing, stagger over a hedge by the roadside. They drove back to offer assistance to the youth, but he had vanished. Similarly, 
Another witness reported seeing a body lying at the side of the road with their legs in the road. Upon turning around to offer help, they had also vanished. 16th of September 1965 saw the weirdness jump up a notch when a Londoner called Wretch claimed that just before 8pm he saw a grey figure with streaming fair hair jump in front of his car. Reg stopped the car and got out to see if the fair-haired gentleman was okay, but he could not find anyone. On the 21st of September, 1965, a farmer and his wife in Shearwater, near Crockerton, were driving when they saw a long-haired man wearing tight trousers spring out of a roadside bush and throw himself under the wheels. They felt their car physically drive over him, they stopped and the farmer searched the area for 10 minutes but found nobody. Turning the strangers up another notch, for reference we are nearly running at peak strangeness here. The 21st of January 1966, a man from Somerset was riding his motorbike near Shearwater Lake when he saw what appeared to be three short grey cloaked and white faced beings entering a hedge. He described them as having wide spaced eyes and no mouths. He also claimed to have seen a saucer of light coming from the side of the lake. After this everything seemingly calmed down and sightings and events dropped considerably. Then in January of 1967 a new sighting was reported. A pensioner witnessed a UFO hovering above a shield. A shield? A field. Two tall figures wearing helmets came out of the craft and wandered into the nearby woods. The figures noticed that they were being watched and one of the figures waved at the pensioner who felt this was signalling him to go away. Late in the summer of 1967, a herd of cows at Chitton, which is eight miles from Warminster, just vanished one morning. They were missing from the pastures and milking sheds for more than 24 hours. The farmer and his staff searched the nearby land to no avail. Eventually, the search had to be called off by a very concerned farmer. Then, the next morning, the cows were all back in the field, closely herded together as if nothing had happened, and after inspection it was clear that they had come to no harm. So we're at peak strangeness now. In early 1972, somebody reported a sighting of an orange disc-shaped object over Bath Road. They then encountered a tall figure dressed in white. The figure apparently moved quickly with long strides and no facial features could be seen. He didn't have a face. That's pretty terrifying. Then in March 1972, Diana Matthews was driving along Bath Road at 2.30am. She witnessed the same being but this time it was jumping over hedges. She described it as a giant wearing white clothing. She then accelerated hard and drove home where she went to sleep. At 5am she was rudely awoken by someone ringing her doorbell. As she got up and made her way to the front door, she could hear a voice calling and described it as gentle but insistent. When she opened the door, nobody was there. On August the 13th, 1972, 
sky watchers on Cradle Hill reported a supercharged atmosphere and loud thumping noises from the nearby hedgerow. As they approached the bushes, three eight-foot-tall humanoids with large domed heads, no necks and wide shoulders, with long dangly arms, came into view. The beings then turned transparent and glided along parallel to the sky, sorry, glided along parallel to the sky watchers for a short time before vanishing as vehicles approached the area. On the same day, a couple from Surrey were parked close to Longleat Woods at 2.30am. Allegedly, they were there to witness the strange events for themselves. They claim they saw two small red lights come out of the woods and fly into the sky. One flew in the direction of Warminster Town, the other to Clay Hill. They approached the location the lights had come from when they felt a negative atmosphere and heard shooting. Upon hearing the shooting noises, the wife ran back to the car. The husband then claimed to see a goat-like creature, green in colour, huge, with fish-like scales all over its body. I don't know about you, but I would be needing a new pair of pants after that encounter. In the year 2000, UFO expert Nick Pope, who was working with the British government and the MOD to try and explain UFO sightings, this was named Project Condine, released a report to the public. He said that UAPs, which are unidentified aerial phenomena, which they started using this abbreviation to try and move away from aliens, apparently. He detailed that UAPs were either man-made vehicles with unfamiliar or abnormal features or natural but not unusual phenomena, which has been misunderstood by the observer, or natural and rare phenomena. Here are the natural phenomena he thought were responsible. Buoyant plasmas formed when a meteor does not fully burn up during entry to the atmosphere and it remains visible to the naked eye and or radar. Loose plasma objects. These can create a physical field from which light will not reflect, which sometimes makes them appear as black triangular crafts of up to hundreds of feet long, which is a very commonly described UFO sighting. Plasmas affecting vehicles. Sometimes the presence of such plasmas can even cause car engines and radios to malfunction if they are nearby. So after hearing all of those reports, what do you think was responsible for the Warminster Thing phenomena? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Um, you can send me your theories via the email address, which is weirdwilcherpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to reading your suggestions. So that brings us to the end of the Warminster thing. It's a crazy phenomena that happened fairly close to where I live, though I have only just recently discovered it. Um, some of the sightings are incredibly hard to believe. I'm, I'm not disputing that. But as I wasn't there, it wouldn't be fair for me to judge. And plus, whether they're fact or fiction, I enjoy reading them and sharing them with you. If you made it this far, thank you very much for listening. And hopefully I've done a good enough job that you'll be back next time. 
please do send in suggestions and your experiences uh, if you want to leave a review and give feedback if you want to uh, I, I am all for constructive criticism uh, but please don't be mean um, I don't deserve that this was the weird Wiltshire podcast with me Will Shire until next time this show was written and produced by Will Shire Music was created and provided for use by the very talented Coag Music. 